So as we've been going through Mark, um, the excitement, uh, the anticipation of Jesus' ministry as He is reaching out to more and more people. Uh, there are a greater number of folks that are coming out to join Him in, in, his, in, in, in his preaching and His teaching. Uh, we're seeing great crowds of folks that are coming out. And, and we just, as we ended off here in Mark chapter 6, talked about how wherever he came in the villages and cities and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Mark has just been doing a great job of, of building this excitement. Um, of seeing the possibility of what Jesus can do in people's lives, the kinds of changes that He can make in the society of of, of Jerusalem and 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 throughout all of Israel, and there's this anticipation of what He's going to do. But but at the same time, Mark keeps on reminding us of this not only as Jesus. Um, uh, uh, Ministry is ramping up and, and, and touching so many people's lives. So is the opposition to Him. There are those that have come out strongly against uh, the message that Jesus has, the way that Jesus lived His life. And, and, and here again, we go from this, this excitement of seeing Jesus uh, healing people that they're just touching the hem of his cloak, and they are being healed. And suddenly, Mark reminds us here in chapter 7 that there is trouble a-brewing. So let's start reading at verse 1 of chapter 7. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples, some of his disciples, ate with hands that were defiled, that is, that they were unwashed. For you see, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the ancients or the elders. And when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and, and dining couches. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the ancients, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, for as it is written, This people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching doctrines as the commandments of men. And then you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. The hand washing that's being described here for uh, the people of Israel, it's not so much a hygienic thing, although that certainly did have a, a part 
uh, part to play in all of this. There was really a ritual purity that was trying to be attained out of all of this. That, that by washing your hands before you would eat, that you would be washing off any potential uncleanness from your being. That you would be outwardly clean so that, that when you would eat, you wouldn't take any uncleanness within you and then defile your whole body. And there was some biblical scriptural precedent for this. If you look in, in Exodus chapter 30, there are instructions for the priests to go through a ritual hand washing before they serve in the temple, before they uh, participate in the sacrifices, or before they were to go into the holy place and, and uh, trim the, the, the lanterns and, and things like that. There was this precedent of, of purifying themselves before they would go in to serve. Um, as, as we read some of the, the writings and we find out more about the, the oral tradition, the, the, the spoken out, passed down tradition that was developing, around the time of Solomon's temple, there had been developed this understanding that the priests, not only before they would go and serve in the temple would they have to wash their hands, but there was also a ritual hand washing that they would go through uh, before they would eat any of the, the meat or the bread that had been sacrificed that had been given as offerings. As they were supposed to, that was part of their, uh, the, the blessing, the privilege of being uh, uh, serving in the temple is that they would be able to, to eat the, the sacrifices that were being brought there. And so, again, they were washing themselves. They were going through this ritual purity so that they wouldn't defile this clean, um, sacrificed food that they were now going to eat. And, and by then, taking in that defilement into their bodies and being made unclean. As time went on, that oral tradition began, began to, to expand and grow, and, and we, we discover that by the time that, that the, uh, the people of Israel returned from exile from Babylon, that there was this, uh, this impetus within the people. They recognized how it had been, the reason they had been taken away from the, the, the land of Israel, the land of promise that God had given them, was because they had gone against the commandments of God. They had broken God's commandments time and time again, and they had been far from God. And, and so as part of that discipline that God had promised them all the way back with, with Moses, was that eventually their sin would bring them to the place where He would remove them off of the land and send them to a land where they did not belong so that the land would have an opportunity to be purified. But, but there was also the promise that when they would repent, that God would bring them back to this land. And, and here they were back after their exile, and they're recognizing that it would have been their sin that had gotten in the way that had led them to that kind of discipline, and they never wanted to get there again. And so they began to build what they referred to as fences around the law. They recognized that there was the Ten Commandments that they, that they didn't want to break because if they broke those Ten Commandments, then they would be again disciplined and removed off the land. And so to protect themselves from, from crossing into that breaking of the Ten Commandments, they started developing a, a series of other laws 
that, would, that they would get to that, that would be a little bit more severe than, than what the Ten Commandments and what the Mosaic Law had to say, a little bit more stringent, a little bit more defined, so that, that, that they would, if, if they broke those laws, they still would be a little bit further away, wouldn't have actually broken the laws of God. And those fences needed more fences because people were crossing those fences. And so they would put another fence a little bit further out and another fence a little bit further out. And pretty soon there was this whole compendium of laws that governed every aspect of life. Part of that was this tradition of hand-washing. It went beyond just the, the priest. The, the thought was that if, if the priests needed to protect themselves from defilement of the uncleanness before they were eating... What about the rest of us? We all need that kind of protection. Who knows what kind of unclean things we might have touched in, in our day-to-day goings about, whether it's here on the farm, in our own home, or out in the marketplace. Who knows what kind of defilement you might have come across in, in your, your uh, shopping and your interactions with people out in the marketplace. So before you could eat, there would be this ritual purification, this ritual hand-washing. And it was quite detailed and quite prominent. But what it showed was, was this passion for, for being clean on the outside, but not recognizing that really the defilement that we had was coming from our own hearts. The darkness and the evil and, and the, the pride and the selfishness within us that was then getting out. Jesus talked about, talked about how they were whitewashed tombs. That they were all nice and pretty on the outside, but inside they were dead. And all of these rituals, all of these religious practices that they had put into place all they were doing were just masking, putting on a religious mask to make them look like they had everything together, to be able to portray to everybody in the community that, that everything is fine, I am holy and I'm in a right relationship with God, but within their hearts it was darkness, was hardness, was, was a stone that, that was unfeeling, unrep- unrepentant to God. I recognize that. I grew up in a church. My dad was a pastor, so our lives were surrounded with the church, with, uh, with the activities, with the people of the church. And as a kid, I was really good at making people think that I was good. Even to this day, we just had a, a, the, the church that I grew up in, my, my dad planted, just celebrated its 50th anniversary. And, and to this day, we still have people that will come and say, oh, I remember you guys when you were all five of you sitting up in the front row. Mom was playing the piano. Dad was up in the pulpit. And all you kids sit so nicely and so obedient. They had no idea all the things that we, we were looking like we were sitting nicely, but in our hearts and in our activities, we were doing all kinds of terrible things. I am good at making people think that I'm good. But my heart 
the darkness that's there. It would be a shame if anybody had a, a TV screen that could see everything that was going on in my heart and in my mind. See, our, our, our trouble isn't the outside. The, the solution to our problem isn't by, by putting on the right clothes, by, by covering up our evil with the right masks. We need a new heart. We need a transformation that comes from the inside out. And these Pharisees did not get it. Jesus in His ministry had all kinds of grace and all kinds of love towards those that were trapped in, in outward sin. That everybody knew that they were the wrong people. That was the tax collectors. It was uh, those that were adulterers and things like that. The Samaritans. Jesus had all kinds of love and grace for those people. Because they knew that they weren't fooling anybody. And they were ready to receive a new heart because they knew that they needed. The harsh words that Jesus spoke were to the religious elite. Those who had, as far as everybody knew on the outside, they had everything together. But they had missed their need. They had missed the real problem. That inside of them was the darkness of their heart. Jesus calls them hypocrites. That Greek word is actually the, the word that, that is used for actors. People that play a part that they really are not. And it was, kind of, it was, it was very much a, 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 a derogatory term. Actors were not the same kind of celebrities that we have today actors were kind of the 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 scum of the earth you wouldn't actually hang out with them you would go to see them for entertainment but but they weren't they weren't people of value or character because you couldn't trust them because they're always playing this role and Jesus points to the Pharisees and say you hypocrites And he has this quote from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 29. It says, You, this people, they honor me with your lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do you worship me, and teach us doctrines, the commandments of men. So Jesus is telling them that they are putting on this outward show but their heart is still far from God. But he doesn't just leave it there. He takes it a step further. And the accusation comes a little bit deeper. Let's keep on reading here. Verse 9 of chapter 7 in Mark. So then he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, 
If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Their human traditions were not just being a mask of righteousness for the rest of the world to see that was hiding the darkness of their heart. They were actually using those traditions to break the law of God. This, this idea of Korban was actually, it had some scriptural roots. If you look in Leviticus um, Leviticus 27 talks about um, giving things permanently over to God, offering part of your property, uh, sometimes offering part of yourself, offering yourself or your children into the service of God, into the possession of God. And, and once it has been given to God and it's, it's, it's been given as an offering to God, that it could never again be used for uh, for uh, secular purposes. So, uh, so there's this great idea, and it was it was an opportunity for people to show their their passion and their zeal for God, their desire to bless God, their recognition of of how everything that they had came from God. And so, there's this means for them to be able to give these gifts to God to the temple, and and it would be a, a permanent gift, and it would show uh, be that opportunity for them to show how much they love God. But again, over time. Humans were so good at this. <laughs> to be able to take these good things, these, these positive attributes, and twist them and corrupt them and distort them into our own nefarious possessions. You, could, you can understand what would be happening. People would say, uh, you know, God had blessed them in, in, in miraculous ways. Who knows exactly what, maybe there was somebody in their family that had been healed, or, or maybe there had been a, a, a particular victory over an enemy or something like that. And, and out of gratitude to God, they said, this part of this land, I am now giving to God as a permanent gift. What's the temple supposed to do with this land now, right? <laughs> you got to have a, a Levite that would come out and till this particular uh, part of their land or whatever, uh, set aside just for the temple. You can't dig it all up and actually put it. So what they were doing was the owner would then care for the land. He would, he would grow things. He would use it for, uh, for maybe pasture land, depending on what the land was, was good for it. But any of the the profit that came out of the, that particular land, whether it was the crop that had been harvested or the, 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 the livestock that had been slaughtered, that was then all given to God. And so, so it, it still remained in the possession of the landowner, but it was considered this gift to God and God got all of the, the, the profits, all of the, the, uh, the blessing out of it that would go to the temple. But what people were now doing was here was an opportunity for them to guard some of their own land so that maybe they owed a bunch of money 
to somebody. They had gotten into debt. And so what they would do is they would then take their land and say, I am offering this land now as a permanent gift to God. You got to talk to God about getting your debt paid now. <laughs> it's like, how does that work? So they still get to live on the land. They still get to, to farm the land and look after it. They still have sustenance from it to be able to make a living. But they no longer have this debt that was hanging over them that they needed to pay off to somebody else. There's other kinds of ways that they would do this. And Jesus here specifically points out to this, uh, this practice of, of when your parents came and, and your parents were no longer of an age where they were able to, to care for themselves, to, to provide for themselves, and they had needs. I don't know if there's like if it was just that they were the kids were just so angry at their parents that they didn't want to help them out, or or if their parents who knows what's going on, but they didn't want to have to provide for their parents. And so protected their land, they said, This is now Korban. This is an offering to God. And it was illegal. It was it was sinful. It was it was uh, un, unpermitted that the parents would then have any expectation of any, uh, any service or any help from their kids because everything that they had was being given to God. And there was other ways that they were doing this as well where they were using these traditions to undermine God's commandments. I have to say, at this point, as I was trying to get this sermon ready, I was trying to think, okay, what do we do with that? Because <laughs> we don't have those kinds of traditions. We're not in a place where we are trying to protect ourselves from looking after our parents or anything like that. How does this apply to us today? What is Jesus trying to say to, to us in 21st century. And I was, I was trying to think through what, what are some traditions that we have that, that contravene God's commandments and His laws. And, and I, was, I, was, I was struggling with that, trying to think what it was. And then, see, I was... <laughs> I was trying to think of all of you guys and think about all the wrong things that you do. <laughs> and then God, like He does, slaps me in the face with the things that I have been doing. And I can't believe that it, it took me so long to, to actually figure this out because I even used the same language, this idea of traditions. And, and I, see, my problem is, is that time I struggle with other church traditions, different, different denominations, uh, different, uh, different styles of, uh, not, not so much styles of worship, but, but different ways that people do church. 
Uh, even even some of the the differences that there are between like like high church. When I look at at some of those churches that have all this ritual, all of the icons, all of the the ceremony and everything, all that kind of stuff. Whether it's Anglican, whether it's Catholic, whether it's Lutheran, and some of these others, where where there is so much built into the out outward appearance, and so often that hides a. Uh, a broken heart, and, and, and I get very critical about some of those other kinds of church traditions. Uh, the other side, you know, uh, more charismatic churches, churches where there's all kinds of... Okay, this is my word. All kinds of excess that goes on in, in, in the worship services. There's, uh, there are, you know, uh, the... The examples of people being healed where people are actually getting pushed over trying to have them slain in the spirit and 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 some of those other kinds of things that and it just it it bugs me even even different ways that people interpret scripture you know there are there are there are lots of examples of of ways that that I understand what the Bible has to say some of the 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 instructions that the Bible gives us. And there's other people that see things differently, whether it is uh, around uh, 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 roles in, in, in ministry, roles in the family, uh, whether it's around end times prophecy, how we interpret what the Bible has to say about what, what things are going to look like at the end of days and, and stuff. And there are these differences. And I find myself getting impatient and frustrated with people who don't see things my way. that don't see things according to my tradition. And suddenly God is saying, you're breaking my law of loving one another because you have your own idea of your own tradition of the way things need to be done, of the way that I meet with my people, the way that I reveal myself. To my people, uh, what what really triggered it for me was was my my thought that 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 the solution to this issue of of how we how we identify what our traditions are that get in the way of the commandments of God, how we act hypocritically, the, how, the, the way that we try and mask and make things look right on the outside, but inside there is death and corruption. Uh, I thought the the way that we figured that out is. What's our motivation? Are we motivated by love? And so I look to the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13 because we can never read this passage enough. First Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4. And, and it says here, love is patient. If, my, if I find myself getting impatient, my motivation is not love. Love is kind. If I see myself acting towards others with 
cruelty, with arrogance, with a desire to, to hurt, my motivation is not love. Love does not envy or boast. If I'm seeing that envy creeping into my heart, that green-eyed monster creeping into my heart, I can know that my motivation is not love. And as I was going through all of these different things, uh, love is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And as I was going through that list and realizing the places in my life where I become impatient, the places in my life where where I recognize that I get a little bit happy when things go wrong for other people, people that I disagree with. When I, when I snap and get angry at somebody or because, because they're wrong. They're doing it wrong. They're not understanding the right way. And I recognize that my motivation is not love. Actually, as I was going through that list, I kind of thought... Jeff Foxworthy would have a good time with this. If you get a little impatient, you might just be a hypocrite. If you refer to other people with rude and disrespectful titles, you might just be a hypocrite. If you insist that your way is the best way, you might just be a hypocrite. If you get a little bit of glee when things go wrong for people you disagree with, you might just be a hypocrite. If you see people as the problem rather than the dark spiritual forces that are at work in their lives. You might just be a hypocrite. So I have been convicted this week of relationships that I have where I get frustrated. Where I hope for things to go wrong so people will see the light and see that my way is the right way. And instead, give all of that up into the hands of God to let Him be my source of love and motivation in hopes that that person would be restored. It's not easy. It's complicated. Because... There are some wrong ideas out there. There are some wrong ways of understanding what the Bible has to say. And, and we are called to 
correct one another. We're instructed to rebuke those who are following wrong. But it always comes back. What is your motivation? Is it the, to see them be restored? Whenever the Bible talks about that correction, whenever it gives examples of, of excommunication or things like that, the motivation, the end goal is restoration. Not just crushing them, but to actually see them brought to life. And, and it comes in gentleness and in love. I don't know. I don't know, maybe God is already putting on your heart some traditions that you have uh, that are causing you to break God's commandment, whether that's Jesus' commandment that you love one another, or maybe there's some other commandment that you are breaking because of your own tradition. Maybe some of the ways that you deal with your taxes. Maybe it's some ways that you deal with speed limits. Maybe there's other things that you have in your life. If there's nothing like that that's coming to you that the Holy Spirit's putting on your heart, let me encourage you. Go through 1 Corinthians 13. Look for those areas of your life where you are getting irritated. Look for those places in your life where you are getting arrogant. Let the Spirit point out for you what are the times when you are demanding your own way. Somewhere in there, there's a tradition that you need to release into God's hands and ask Him to bring love into your heart. so that you can be an agent of redemption and restoration rather than a hard-hearted hypocrite that's just crushing others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in our surrender here today, we recognize we need Your help. I am so good at fooling myself. Justifying the things that I do and say. I need Your Spirit to come and point out those areas of my life where I am where I'm following after my own self-centeredness where I'm allowing my pride and arrogance to get in the way of of your truth of your character being refined in me 
So Lord, we, we come to you this morning asking for your help. I know it's going to be hard. That kind of conviction often is a, a devastating revelation. But Lord, I know that you are good. That even in the midst of my own weaknesses, my, the, the reality of my own failures, that I can find in you hope, that I can find in you transformation, that I can find in you redemption and freedom. So we pray that once again today, God, you would help us to keep in step with your Spirit, to hear what you're saying to us, to be open to to walking through those difficult revelations, those times of conviction so that you can continue that refining process in our hearts and you can transform us so that our lives produce the fruit of your Spirit. Thank you for what you're going to do in our hearts. Amen.